The nuclear industry is fond of touting its ultimate importance to business, to climate, even to world peace of all things. So when you hear a genuine expert like Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education quote an international business journal like Forbes as saying, America's commitment to build over 100 nukes and the world's commitment to build 450 nukes was the biggest managerial disaster in the history of business, according to Forbes magazine. Well, when you hear information like that, you begin to understand how hot that seat is that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we hear a presentation by Arne Gunderson, chief engineer at Fairwinds Energy Education, who is not only a one-time licensed nuclear reactor operator, but also an industry whistleblower. Arne uses the nuclear industry's own statistics to demolish the argument that nuclear reactors can have any significant influence on climate change. It's a presentation with examples worth memorizing and utilizing as talking points because they are so clear and compelling. Plus, we will have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the nuclear reactor duck and cover report, and more honest nuclear information than losing senatorial candidate Roy Moore in Alabama will ever allow into his brain. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, December 12, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Seeming good news for the residents of North St. Louis as the Environmental Protection Agency released a list on Friday, December 1st, citing the Westlake landfill in Bridgeton, Missouri, which contains nuclear waste from World War II efforts to build the atomic bomb, as one of 21 toxic waste sites now targeted for, quote, immediate intense action. It's part of what EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt described as an effort to spur action on Superfund toxic waste sites that have languished on the list for many years. Westlake has been there since 1990. Seemingly a win, but define the words immediate, intense, and action as used by the current administration. And then it's necessary to not let up to make certain that it's more than a PR announcement and that genuine substantive action is being taken. Keep in mind the recent New York Times article that said that under Trump, 
the EPA has slowed actions against polluters and put limits on enforcement officers. We'll believe the action when we see it. In Washington State, the Hanford site has announced that the first radioactive tank farm has been emptied. But again, the truth is a bit more complex than that headline. Work began about 19 years ago to empty the thick radioactive sludge and salt cake from 16 underground tanks in the group called Sea Tank Farm. The tanks were built during World War II with a plan to last 20 years rather than the current 70 years that they have been in operation. Several of the farm's 16 tanks are suspected of having leaked waste into the ground before much of the liquid was pumped from the tanks by 2010. DOE has yet to declare the tank emptied to regulatory standards. If out of 149 tanks, only 16 have been cleared in 19 years, and there are 133 tanks left, that means that it could be as much as 152 years before the rest of these tanks are emptied. Donald Trump recently announced his decision to shrink the National Monument at Bear Ears by more than one million acres. But looky here. According to the Washington Post, a uranium company lobbied the Trump administration to shrink the size of this national monument in Utah months before this decision was reached. Energy Fuels Resources USA, Incorporated, a subsidiary of a Canadian firm that operates the nation's last uranium meal just outside the monument, argued that reducing the monument would allow them to access deposits of uranium located within the monument's original boundaries. Thus, it is quite disingenuous that Secretary of the Interior Ryan Zink has repeatedly denied the administration's decision was influenced by energy opportunities, telling reporters there are, quote, no measurable oil and gas opportunity in Bear's ears, conveniently skipping over the U-word, uranium. Many legal challenges to this step are in the works. Time for the duck! <laughs> and cover report on what's gone wrong with our fleet of leaking, aging, rust-bucket nuclear reactors this time. Dominion Energy has shut down one of its two nuclear reactors at the North Anna Power Station in Virginia after the company says a, quote, very small water leak, end quote, was discovered in the cooling system. Very small water leak is like saying that someone is a little bit pregnant or slightly dead. According to a conversation held between Erica Gray of the Sierra Club Nuclear Free Campaign and Nuclear Regulatory Commission Senior Public Affairs Officer Roger Hanna, because Dominion decided to take the reactor offline before it met the reportable leakage limits, it doesn't have to be treated as a reportable event to the NRC. So many details will never be made public. However, Dominion did tell the NRC that it was leaking two gallons a minute, and the NRC inspector said the leak was discovered Saturday and they had to wait until Monday to send workers in because they had to wait for radiation levels to go down. And to think that Dominion is already working on extending their licenses to run these rust buckets up to 80 years. Two identical reports on St. Lucie in Florida from November 22nd and December 10th. Both unusual events, nothing more usual than a usual event at a nuclear reactor, but these are unusual events due to a smoke detector alarm received inside containment. Have you tried changing the battery out, dude? <laughs> <laughs> 
Over to Japan, where in November, a $500 million class action lawsuit against General Electric Company was filed in federal court in Boston by a group that includes residents, medical clinics, and companies operating in the area affected by the Fukushima nuclear disaster. The lawsuit claims that GE designed and largely constructed the entire failed Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant that is in the center of this dispute, and for many years, directly or indirectly through its affiliates, was responsible for the maintenance of the plant. To this day, GE has paid literally nothing towards the massive economic and business destruction its actions and failings have caused, this according to the lawsuit. At the Fukushima Daiichi disaster site, although 34.5 billion yen, or the equivalent of 309 million U.S. dollars, in taxpayer money has funded an ice wall to keep out groundwater from the Fukushima nuclear power plant site, the frozen barrier may not be meeting hopes and expectations. We seem to have this exact same story every three months here at Nuclear Hot Seat. This time in particular... The wall has been vulnerable to heavy rain brought by typhoons. Predictions are that this boondoggle will never work, but it sure will put money in somebody's pockets. A new academic paper, Increases in Perinatal Mortality in Prefectures Contaminated by the Fukushima Nuclear Power Plant Accident in Japan, shows that deaths of newborns increased in areas irradiated by Fukushima nuclear radiation from the disaster. Perinatal mortality in areas contaminated with radioactive substances started to increase 10 months after the nuclear accident relative to the prevailing and stable secular downward trend. These results are consistent with findings in Europe after Chernobyl. And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. The Tokyo Organizing Committee of the Olympics and Paralympic Games is teaming up with the Reconstruction Agency to bring delicacies, their words, from the 2011 disaster hit Iwate, Miyagi, and Fukushima prefectures to the table for its banquet with the International Olympic Committee on today, December 12th. Actually, the Tokyo Committee plans to use its many opportunities to appeal to the IOC about the safety of Fukushima products and the charm, their word, charm, of the Tohoku region's abundant foodstuffs. One spokesmodel said, We would like many people to try our products and better understand the situation in the disaster-hit areas. In truth, If they understood the level of contamination in the Fukushima area and the danger that it posed to everyone around it, they would never even taste the products. Be it the planned menu of platinum pork, two kinds of rice, mackerel, beef tongue, apples, and chicken, all suspect because they're not being tested. And it's not just these officials who are going to be subjected to this food. A menu made with ingredients from the affected areas is also planned to be utilized for athletes in the Olympic Village and other locations. As pointed out by Beverly Finlay Kaneko, producer of the Voices from Japan series every year on Nuclear Hot Seat for Fukushima, she said, sampling a few items isn't going to harm the old fogies on the Olympic Committee, but they don't have to live there with children and make choices that affect health day in and day out. Using foreigners to pronounce Fukushima safe 
is a particularly evil form of PR. And that's why Reconstruction Committee and all of you Olympic officials who are chowing down on potentially radioactive food, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. By the way, whatever happened to TV host Norikazu Otsuka, who was so pleased to be shown chowing down on Fukushima food in the immediate aftermath of the 2011 nuclear disaster, and then as of November of 2011, left his job as host of a popular program because he was diagnosed with acute lymphatic leukemia. Where is he now and how is he now? They never bother to tell. And now authorities in Fukushima plan to scale down radiation tests on rice harvested in the prefecture. Tra-la, tra Internationally, the U.S. and South Korea began war games last week, only days after North Korea ran its latest missile test. The North Korean government calls the latest military drills by the U.S. and South Korea a grave provocation adding to regional and global fears that Donald Trump's aggressive actions at a time of heightened tensions could endanger civilian lives. Involved in the war games are U.S. Air Force, Navy, and Marines, along with 200 American planes and 12,000 military personnel. The government of Kim Jong-un warned that the drills would bring tensions to the brink of nuclear war. In Canada, Earlier this year, the Anishinaabek Nation and Iroquois Caucus unified and strongly opposed the transportation of highly radioactive waste material from Chalk River to South Carolina, as well as the abandonment of radioactive waste from Chalk River and other federally owned nuclear facilities in a giant mound situated beside the Ottawa River, a source of drinking water for millions and a major tributary to the St. Lawrence River. The Anishinaabek Nation and Iroquois Caucus have jurisdiction over the Great Lake and St. Lawrence River basins as a result of Aboriginal titles and the treaties that have been entered into by First Nations and the Crown. Best wishes that your treaty law is finally respected. We'll have this week's feature in just a few moments, but first, it's the holiday season in case you didn't notice, and everyone is asking, and that includes us. That's right. Nuclear Hot Seat relies on donations, your donations, to help keep us going with our coverage of all things nuclear from a different perspective. If you are committed to keeping up on the difficult truths about the nuclear industry and find the information that you get here important, compelling, eye-opening, stimulating, funny, absurd, terrifying, or simply impossible to find in any one other outlet, Help us keep providing you this service by sending a donation. We make it easy. Just go to our website, nuclearhotseat.com, and click on the big red Donate button. That's where you can make a donation of any size, as a one-time gift or a recurring donation. And we also have a fast, easy, low-cost way to donate. Click on the big green Donate button to set up a monthly $5 donation. That's it the amount of a cup of coffee, and a tip to the barista. Either way, know that you are helping us get word out about nuclear issues around the world that don't usually get heard. And for your help in achieving that, I am truly and deeply grateful. Here's this week's special feature. 
During my recent trip to Chicago to cover the University of Chicago's orgy of self-congratulations in celebrating, celebrating the first atomic pile, some sanity did manage to get into the conversation. It came from events produced and coordinated by NEIS, the Nuclear Energy Information Service, and it helped to provide an alternative narrative to the universities and the nuclear industry's PR infomercial. NEIS brought out Arnie Gunderson to speak, and what follows is the second of his two presentations during that time. Arnie is the chief engineer at Fairwinds Energy Education, a former licensed nuclear reactor operator, and a whistleblower. On Sunday, December 3, Arnie spoke at Chicago's Third Unitarian Church, located not far from the University of Chicago, where he gave the best explanation of global warming that I have ever heard. He then connected nukes to climate change and the reality of what nuclear reactors actually do and do not do in light of the highly touted industry-wide carbon-free argument. Listen up and take notes. This one's got languaging that's a keeper. Note that Arnie makes reference to one slide, and as soon as we get a copy of it, we will have it on the website. I wanted to um, talk about Goldilocks and the Three Bears. We all know the story where the porridge was, one was too hot, one was too cold, and one was, one was just right. Well, in astronomy, there's a term called the Goldilocks zone, which around a star, there's a place that's neither too hot, like Mercury, it's a little bit too hot there, or too cold, like Mars and Jupiter and Saturn. And the Earth and Venus happen to be in that Goldilocks zone, where it's, um, there's enough heat to um, have water in liquid form. Now, Venus is, a, you'll see it sometimes early in the morning or, or at sunset or sunrise, is a very bright star. In fact, it's a planet. And it's our closest neighbor. It's about 65 million miles from the sun, and the Earth is 93 million miles from the sun. But that zone, water should exist in liquid form. Anybody know how hot it is on Venus? 600 degrees. It's like 900 degrees, right? So why is Venus in the Goldilocks zone where liquid water should exist? Why is it 900 degrees? Because its atmosphere has loaded with carbon dioxide. So when anybody says that CO2 doesn't cause global warming, just ask the people that used to live on Venus. You know? <laughs> yeah. If you do the math, if, if Venus had an atmosphere like Earth, it would be about, about 165 degrees. So it would be hot, there's no doubt about it, but liquid water could exist. So in order for life to exist, you need liquid water. So now let's go to the third rock from the sun, that's us. The Earth is, imagine the Earth is an apple. Well, the part that we live in, the, the biosphere, the, the, the habitable, par habitable part of that apple is as thick as the skin on the apple. That's it. The rest of the planet is, is uninhabitable. So, you know, essentially the atmosphere up to 40,000 feet, geese have been known to fly over the, the Himalayas. So, in theory, things can exist up at about 40,000 feet down to the bottom of a trench in the Pacific, and that could be about eight miles deep. So eight miles high to eight miles deep is essentially as thick as the skin on, on the apple. 
And what's happened over the years is the Earth was, was warmer than it is now back when the dinosaurs roamed the Earth. And not only were there dinosaurs, but there was a lot of plants. And our air has always contained carbon dioxide. And for the last millennia, many millennia, the concentration of carbon dioxide has been about 280 parts per million. That, that's the steady state carbon dioxide essentially since the dinosaurs died. It's been, it's been around 280 parts per million. What, what part per million is if I've got a million air molecules, 280 of them are going to be carbon dioxide. That's been the steady state number for, uh, uh, for years and for, for decades and centuries and, and eons. Since, essentially since the dinosaurs died. But before that, we had higher concentrations of carbon, and we had an awful lot of plants. Plant, you know, we all know we exhale carbon dioxide, and plants absorb carbon dioxide. So all these plants absorbed that carbon dioxide, <coughs> died, and then through geological processes over time, that carbon got taken out of the skin of the apple and brought down below that. So that carbon was removed from the part of the planet that we have an influence on. So about 200 years ago, with the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, mankind discovered, hey, we can burn coal to run steam engines or heat our homes. And we began to dig down below that skin of the apple and pull up some of that old carbon. And ever since then, carbon dioxide has been growing in the atmosphere from 280 to when I was born, about 300 parts per million. So there was a very gradual, over 200 years, carbon dioxide did go up. How do people know that? They know it because of ice cores. They drill down into glaciers and they, uh, you know, the Greenland ice pack or whatever, and they can sample what the uh, atmosphere was like at different points in time, back thousands and thousands of years. And with the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, when mankind was able to puncture the skin of the apple and get below it, get to all these dead dinosaurs and all the dead, the dead plants that had turned to coal and oil and natural gas, now we started to bring that carbon up to the surface again. So when we started to burn fossil fuels, essentially at the, at the Industrial Revolution, 1700 roughly, carbon dioxide began gradually to increase. So with that as an introduction, let's go to when I was born. And somebody really smart in Hawaii in the 1960s at a place called Mauna Loa began to measure the carbon, carbon dioxide uh, in the atmosphere every year. And so when you hear the Mauna Loa data, it goes back to 1960. And somebody has been continuously tracking carbon dioxide in the atmosphere since then. So we were running along for thousands and thousands of years at 280, and then it started to gradually go up. And when I was born, it was 300 to 310, roughly. And then it began to increase. And this, the one slide I'll be using today is the one that's up there. On the left, is the, uh, it's, it's a red spiky slide, and it shows the Mauna Loa data. And no one is disputing this Mauna Loa data. It's scientifically proven. Now you'll see it goes up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, but the trend of the line is always up. And what's happening there is every summer, carbon dioxide drops. 
because plants absorb carbon from the atmosphere. And every winter, carbon dioxide goes up. But the trend of the line is upward because mankind is throwing more carbon into the atmosphere every year. So that's the Mauna Loa data. Now, what happened, you've heard of Bill McKibben and 350.org? He gets his 350 from the concentration in the atmosphere of 350 parts per million. And a lot of scientists say that's the red line. Now that we're over 350, the climate will change. And we're not just over it by a little bit. We're now over it by 50 parts per million. We're up at over 400 parts per million in carbon. So remember now, with the advent of the Industrial Revolution, we're at 280. And 310 by the time I was born. So just barely, 10% went up a little bit. And now since 1960, it's screamed upward from 310 to 400. McKibben chose 350. It's right around the same time that James Hansen said that uh, carbon dioxide's a real problem and it's going to affect the climate. So McKibben's goal in 350.org is to turn the curve around, to turn the analog data around and get it to go back down and, the, you know, the world that we're used to, the world where you can go skiing in the winter and, uh, you know, mountains actually have snow on them and things like that, only exists if the, <coughs> if the CO2 levels can stabilize at 350. So I, lesson number one is we're in trouble. That's, that's what the Mauna Loa data shows. The curve next to it is um, something that Fairwinds put together. We had four interns and two PhDs working for a year to get that, the curve on the, uh, on, the, on the right there. And I need to introduce another term. So that, and I promise there will only be two terms, parts per million and gigatons. You know when you've got your, your computer has megabytes and then gigabytes and then terabytes, giga is, uh, is a term. And it means a thousand million is a giga. So when we talk about gigatons, we talk about a thousand million tons. In America, I could say billion, but the Brits and the Japanese have different, have different terms for it. So the scientific community says giga uh, to confuse people and make, them, make <laughs> us think that they're smarter than we are. But so anyway, mankind's throwing up a lot of dead dinosaurs into the atmosphere every year. And we're throwing up right now about 36 gigatons per year. 36,000 million tons, 36 billion tons of carbon dioxide every year. That's a big number. And it's roughly the equivalent of the amount of dead dinosaurs that died in a million years. So every year, we're sucking out a million years worth of carbon dioxide that's been stored below the skin of the apple and throwing that back into the atmosphere. So there's a, a definite correlation here. They're both going up. Parts per million are going up at about two parts per million a year. And mankind's been throwing carbon into the atmosphere at a little less than an extra gigaton a year for the last, you know, essentially since I've been in the nuclear industry. So there's a definite correlation. The more CO2 we throw up, the more we become like Venus and the less we become like the Earth that we knew about. So let's just keep that up there, keep it in mind, and now I'll talk about nuclear power and its relationship to global warming. I got out of college in 71 with a bachelor's, and 
72 with my master's in nuclear engineering. And um, that was at the beginning of the, there were very few nuclear plants when I started college, and 20 years later, there's 450 of them. So it was the first boom in nuclear power. Since about 1990, there haven't been many more because of economics. And um, actually, Forbes magazine said that building those 450 nuclear power plants was, and this is their words, the biggest managerial disaster in the history of business. And that was in 1985. Now, Forbes is not an anti-nuke anti outfit. I mean, they have no dog in the fight. They're business. So America's commitment to build over 100 nukes and the world's commitment to build 450 nukes was the biggest managerial disaster in the history of business, according to Forbes magazine. So now let's get to Illinois. Illinois is, um, has the most nukes in, of any state in the union. And, of course, you're, you're aware that there's been a, a big bailout of the nuclear plants in Illinois. I can assure you, I, you know, I, I built these plants. I worked at Dresden down the road here by about 50 miles. I worked up at Zion. I worked at Quad Cities and, and, and Braidwood during my career. But when those plants were built, nobody built them about carbon dioxide. It was, carbon dioxide wasn't even on the radar back in the 70s when these plants were built. So now the nuclear industry is saying, whoa, we need these nukes because of carbon dioxide. That's a marketing ploy. But they were not built because of that. You, you might remember in the 70s we had these gas lines and things like that. They were built because there was an energy shortage. We were running out of energy. We needed nuclear power to displace oil. That didn't happen. But in fact, those, um, those nukes, carbon dioxide was never on the agenda. Right around the year 2000, as these old nukes were aging and becoming more expensive to run, they latched on to the marketing ploy, oh my God, nukes are going to save the world from carbon dioxide buildup. So I want to set aside the desecration of Native American lands from mining, Forget about the desecration of Fukushima and, and, and uh, Chernobyl from disasters. And let's not worry about storing nuclear waste for a quarter of a million years. Let's set all that aside. And, <laughs> and we'll just talk about money. Okay, so this is the, the next little bit here is about money. The nuclear plants that are out there now do displace some carbon dioxide. And so 450 nuclear plants, let's look at the gigatons. 36 gigatons is what we are throwing up into the world through our cars, through heating, through everything, every year. Now, if we didn't have those 450 nukes, this is an audience participation piece here, if we didn't have those 450 nukes, how much more gigatons do you think we would throw up? Well, I'll give you the bands. 5%, 10%, 20%, and 50% more gigatons of carbon dioxide going up into the atmosphere. So show of hands. So who thinks um, if we didn't have those 450 nukes, if they had never been built, how much worse would it be? 5%? Okay, about half the group. Uh, 10%? Well, about the other half of the group. Uh, 20%? And 50%. Okay. <laughs> so the, the group is saying 5 to 10% to seems to be the, the consensus here. Well, what, at Fairwinds, what we did was we used nuclear industry data from one of their international websites, 
And the real answer is, if we didn't have those, all those nukes, there would be one gigaton more for all of them. One gigaton more would be thrown into the atmosphere, or 3%. So the group that said 5%, that was the right answer. Nukes are only eliminating 3% of the carbon dioxide that's getting thrown into the atmosphere now. And that's all of them. That's all 450 of them. So worldwide, worldwide, 450 worldwide nukes. And in the U.S., we've got 100. In Illinois, I think you've got 18. Is that right? 11 operating. 11 operating. Okay. So then what you do is you take 3% and you divide it by 450. And each nuclear power plant is reducing global gases into the atmosphere, carbon dioxide, by 0.007%, seven thousandths of 1%. So when you hear that argument that, oh my God, if we shut down Quad Cities, uh, all the polar bears are going to die, it's just not true. It's an inconsequential amount. Really, we talk about nuclear taking a bite out of climate change. Nuclear is taking a nibble out of climate change. So when we look at where we are now, nuclear hasn't bent the curve. And in fact, if you talk to climate scientists, they say if we had spent all that money in that quote, managerial disaster on renewables, we would be much better off than with the 450 nukes that we have today. So that's where we are today. We're throwing up 36 gigatons, and without nukes, we'd be throwing up 37 gigatons, 3% more. And the question is, did we spend the money correctly back in the 80s and 70s? Could it have been better spent? It's spent. We can't worry about it. It's order on... Order under the bridge. Now let's look forward into 2050, so 35 years out, roughly. And the nuclear industry uh, has said that in order to combat global warming, we need 1,000 new nuclear plants. 1,000 new nuclear plants. And they, they never say that the other part of that is that it's going to take us 35 years to build them, and it's going to cost $8.2 trillion to build them. Now, and that number, the $8.2 trillion, comes from the investment banking firm Lazard. Now, so they don't have a dog in this fight either. It's not like I'm relying on Greenpeace or Friends of the Earth or, or, or any, quote, anti-nuclear organization. This is banks and the nuclear industry that the information I'm sharing it with. So the nuclear industry says that they need 1,000 new nukes and they, they don't say the other half of that. And oh, by the way, it's going to cost $8.2 trillion to build. So the question, there's this thing in economics called the opportunity cost. And the question is, if you spend $8.2 on nukes, $8.2 trillion, could that money have been better spent on, on something else? This is a discussion the United States should have had back in 1970 or 1960 during that first boom, but we didn't. And so we have 450 nukes that we are essentially living with. But do we have to double down on that bet and add 1,000 more? First of all, 1,000 new nukes means that a new nuclear plant would have to go online just about every 10 or 12 days between now and 2050. And there is no infrastructure to do that. You know, the colleges that used to teach nuclear engineering aren't anymore. The facilities that are capable of building a nuclear reactor or turbines or all of the nuclear components 
aren't, um, aren't capable of building one every 12 days. The engineering schools just are not there, and the, the, the engineering talent is not there to build that many power plants in that time span. So uh, there's an infrastructure issue that how could we ever do that anyway? But hey, when, when there's $8.2 trillion on the line, I'm sure somebody will figure out a way to make that happen. So MIT has done a study, and MIT actually has a Tokyo Electric chair in their nuclear department. So again, they're certainly not anti-nuclear. And MIT says that these gigatons of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere are going to grow to about 60 gigatons per year, even if the United States and other nations implement the Paris Accords. You know, the Paris Accords are the thing that, that uh, the Trump administration is trying to get us out of. Even if we were in that game and everybody else was in that game, the CO2 would still increase to about 60 parts, uh, 60 gigatons over the next 35 years. So why is that? The answer is everybody wants to live like us. The, the people in India want their car and their air conditioning. The people in China want their car and, and their air conditioning. South Asia wants a car and air conditioning. Africa wants their car and, and air conditioning. South America wants their car and air conditioning. And you can't begrudge people for wanting to live like we do. So if, if that trend were to continue, we would be at 60 gigatons per year, even if the best efforts of COP21, the, the Paris Accords, took effect. And the MIT, those MIT numbers assume a thousand new nukes are built. So what the key here is that it takes 35 years to build them. And there's this concept, uh, in addition to opportunity cost, the fact of the matter is that global climate change isn't going to say, oh, well, we'll take a vacation for 35 years while you build those nukes. Mm -hmm. It's still growing. And the midpoint of 35 years is 17 years, at two parts per million a year, global warming is going to increase by 32 parts per million while we're building those nukes. So what percent of that 60 gigatons will the, these new nukes take a bite out of? And the answer is 6%. So the nuclear industry would like to have us spend $8 trillion to solve 6% of the problem. And oh, by the way, we're going to take 35 years to solve it. And to my way of thinking, and to an awful lot of uh, uh, people's way of thinking, uh, that doesn't make economic sense. You know, for, forget the indigenous lands, forget the, the odds are there'll be a meltdown like Chernobyl or Fukushima, about 50-50 odds in the next 10 years. Push all that stuff aside and just talk about the money does it make sense to invest $8.2 trillion to solve 6% of the problem? Now, this opportunity cost number that economists use is, um, uh, I think, is a, is a critical concept here. And that's that basically, if I commit to spend $8.2 trillion on nuclear, that's $8.2 trillion I can't spend on renewables or energy conservation or any of those alternatives. Well, it turns out that, let's get back to money now, we're putting aside all the insults to the environment, get back to money. A new nuke, electricity is measured at something called bus bar cost, and at, at the, as it leaves the power plant, 
for an existing nuke, it's about six or eight cents to create the kilowatt of electricity that leaves the power plant. Now, you pay more than that. Your bill is higher than eight cents a kilowatt, and that's because after it leaves the power plant, there's distribution and transmission costs to get it to you. But the cost of the power plant is six to eight cents for a, a power plant today. These new nukes are now so expensive that the bus bar cost, the cost as it leaves the boundary and heads out into the grid, is going to be about 20 cents a kilowatt, compared to 2 cents right now for solar. So a new nuke is 10 times more expensive than an electric watt generated by solar. Now people will say, well, yeah, but solar's intermittent. So let's go to Elon Musk and throw one of his batteries on and solar plus one of Musk's batteries is around six or eight cents, and that number's declining. So a grid of distributed power, thousands of solar collectors or windmills or whatever, linked together with a storage system, is at least half as cheap as a nuclear baseload alternative. So I think what's going to happen here is that a uh, hundred years from now, when a historian looks back on what we're going through right now, they're going to say that this is not about being pro-nuke or anti-nuke. It's really not. It's a change in the paradigm. When I was building nukes, we had to build central powers because we didn't have the technology that, that has developed for solar collectors. And we didn't have the ability with computers to connect small distributed loads. We needed a big power plant, and for, you know, perhaps for Illinois, there's probably a couple hundred, including the nukes, to do that. But times have changed. You know, just like we don't have to be connected into a, a, a central phone system anymore, uh, the computers have replaced that. Or just like um, my computer doesn't need, I don't need to go to a mainframe to do a, to do a calculation anymore. I can do that. What's happened is that the grid is changing from a central station paradigm in the 20th century to a 21st century paradigm of a distributed network. And the battle that we're in, I think when you look back 100 years from now, will not be about, I was an anti-nuker, I was a pro-nuke. The battle is the world is changing and the central station people, including the people we heard at the University of Chicago and the need for nuclear, those people are trapped in a 20th century paradigm. But the 21st century paradigm is going to be one of thousands of interconnected small collectors that, in fact, talk to each other. Now, that exists right now. Denmark has um, changed from uh, a system of about 20 or 30 or 40 large power plants to a, a system of hundreds of uh, windmills and solar and garbage burners. Denmark actually is... is uh, importing garbage from Germany to run their trash plants uh, instead of relying on coal or oil. Now, I should mention one other thing about biomass. You know, we talk about burning coal. Now, that's going underneath that layer of the apple and pulling up old carbon and throwing it up in the air. When you burn wood, and in Burlington, Vermont, where I'm from, we have a, a wood-burning power plant, it produces carbon but that carbon was already in the skin of the apple. So it burning biomass, whatever it is, um, you know, wood or, or, or grass or whatever, burning biomass doesn't change the total amount of carbon in, in the skin of the apple. 
what it does do is, is produce power and there's no increase in carbon dioxide. It's only when we drill through the skin of the apple and suck up that carbon or in, in oil or gas or when we dig it up with coal that we take carbon that's below the skin of the apple and pull it up into the atmosphere. So one of the things that's happened in the last three years is that the curve on the, on the right has flattened out. We have been going up at a little less than a gigaton a year, but for the last two years, it's flattened out. And that's a fascinating trend. What's happened there is that China is building more renewables and shutting down their coal plants. China has cut back on the amount of carbon dioxide that it's throwing up in the atmosphere. So the curve has leveled out as far as gigatons getting thrown in the atmosphere. But guess what? The PPMs are still going up. The carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, even though we're not adding any more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, we still are adding 36 new gigatons every year, and the PPMs are still going up at roughly 2 ppm per year. Now, that's frightening, and what that says is that the ability of the Earth to absorb that carbon dioxide is maxed out. The Earth can't absorb anymore into the oceans or into the rainforests or, or wherever that carbon dioxide has been going. So we need to come up with technologies that are cheap, certainly cheaper than nuclear, and fast. I can build 50, the equivalent of 50 power plants using solar in the time it takes to build one nuclear, and for roughly the same price. And so that's the key. We need to, the climate change is a now problem. And to talk about, well, maybe we should develop fusion power, and that's going to be 50 years from now before we get the first one, or traveling wave, or Bill Gates says that uh, small modulars are the way to go. All of those are, are solutions that, of which the first power plant may come online 20 years from now. 20 years is too late for the first one. We need a system, a distributed system, that solves the problem right now. And it, luckily for us, it's available. It wasn't available when I was building power plants. But it is now, and that's a distributed system. And it's cheaper, and it's faster, and it works. During the Q&A that followed, Arnie addressed the opportunities provided by energy efficiency. Energy efficiency is still as cheap as building a solar collector. If you want to put Exelon out of business, put one solar collector on your roof. And what that does is that the power... They make their money at the peak. And the peak, of course, occurs when the sun is really bright and really hot. Well, if you're generating your maximum capacity at the peak, you're reducing their profits. So every one of us, if we put one solar, one solar collector on our roof, would take a nibble out of Exelon's profits and, and force them to shut the nukes down quicker. That was Arnie Gunderson, Chief Engineer at Fairwinds Energy Education. Their website is fairwinds.com, and that's an E in Fairwinds, F-A-I-R-E, winds.com. We will have a link up on our website to the two-minute animation that Fairwinds created entitled Smokescreen, which brilliantly summarizes the points that Arnie just made in this speech. Activist shout-out! Kumar Sundaram, the Indian anti-nuclear activist, has been in California and the West Coast just in time to run into all of our wildfires. 
He currently is evacuated from Santa Barbara from the Thomas Fire and is still looking for groups that he can address up and down the West Coast over the next month. You can contact Kumar directly on Facebook or send an email to me at info at nuclearhotseat.com if you've got a place for him to speak to or if you've got a place for him to stay. I'll make certain that he gets the information. Here's today's final thought. I don't usually plan to get up at 4 a.m. and usually only see that hour if my insomnia has been kicking up. But last Sunday, December 10, I welcomed the alarm because it allowed me to watch the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony in Oslo, Norway, live over the Internet. That was where the international campaign for the abolition of nuclear weapons received the Nobel Peace Prize for 2017. It's not often, in fact it's unprecedented, that the anti-nuclear perspective gets this magnitude of acknowledgement from the outside world. And I wanted to be in the digital room where it happened, when it happened when the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICAN, received this prestigious award. What struck me first was the clarity of language intent used by all three strong, uncompromised, and uncompromising women, yes, women, who spoke. Barrett Rees Anderson, chair of the Norwegian Nobel Committee, set the tone by describing the history of the atom bomb, the history of ICANN, and calling the world to task for the lack of progress towards nuclear disarmament. She acknowledged the role ICANN played in moving the United Nations to pass the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which has now been signed by 53 nations, making it effectively international law. She said, ICANN's premise is humanitarian, maintaining that any use of nuclear weapons will cause unacceptable human suffering. Then Beatrice Finn, executive director of ICANN, took the stage. Looking the world straight in the eye, she spoke truth to power with calm strength and brilliant languaging. Her most shockingly powerful statement has already been edited, twisted, and manipulated by the world's media, both online and in hard copy, in what I perceive as an attempt to undermine its absolute power. So here are her exact words, taken from the official Nobel transcript. Beatrice Finn said, Will it be the end of nuclear weapons, or will it be the end of us? One of these things will happen. The only rational course of action is to cease living under the conditions where our mutual destruction is only one impulsive tantrum away. This key phrase so shocked the world with its clarity and directness that the attempt to bury it has already begun. Do not let that happen. I quote Beatrice Finn again, repeating her exact words. One impulsive tantrum away. Not tiny tantrum. Not one tantrum. One impulsive tantrum away.
Don't lose that word because that is the electric jolt. That is the shocker. Then Setsko Thurlow spoke as one of the Hibaksha, those who were subjected to and somehow survived the atomic bombs that fell on Hiroshima, as in her case, or Nagasaki. Her personal story, filled with heartbreak and rage, was almost too painful to hear. But still, we listened. She said, Still, some refused to see Hiroshima and Nagasaki as atrocities, as war crimes. They accepted the propaganda that these were good bombs that had ended a just war. It was this myth that led to the disastrous nuclear arms race, a race that continues to this day. Sesko Thurlow knows the truth of atomic bombs, or nuclear weapons, as the term has been whitewashed of its fearful atomic associations. She has lived its terror, its reality. Lost family members, lost schoolmates, lost a city, lost a life, and somehow survived to speak these words this day in this context. Near the end, she said, When I was a 13-year-old girl, trapped in the smoldering rubble, I kept pushing. I kept moving towards the light. And I survived. Our light now is the ban treaty. To all in this hall and all listening around the world, I repeat those words that I heard called to me in the ruins of Hiroshima. Don't give up. Keep pushing. See the light? Crawl towards it. These are words quoted from great women. They call to us, to the best in us, to challenge us to join their fight, which is really our fight. Those who call them fools or dismiss them as naive, as so many did just one week ago at the University of Chicago's obscene celebration of the first nuclear pile and everything that has come from it. Those who do not pay attention to these women and take them seriously severely misjudge who and what they are up against, which is nothing less than the will of the world, voiced through these women and the women and men who join them. On next week's Nuclear Hot Seat for our holiday program, we'll present audio from these speeches. We will also encore our interview with Sister Megan Rice, who at 83 broke into the Oak Ridge High Security Nuclear Facility in Tennessee in order to graffiti the words swords into plowshares on the side of a wall and stand in prayer with two others until she was arrested, as she knew she would be. Stories of inspiration for the holiday season from women who speak truth to power and mark a path for us all. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, December 12, 2017. 
Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net and Sean McGee, deunrenard.wordpress.com and Hervé Courtois, miningawareness.wordpress.com, stltoday.com, tri-cityherald.com, thinkprogress.org, newsplex.com, usnews.com, democracynow.org, bizjournals.com, asahi.com, commondreams.org, japantimes.co.jp, balkaninsights.com, I'll get that story in yet, inews.co.uk, the Iroquois Caucus, the karmically challenged cubicle slaves grinding out press releases for world nuclear news, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, and a shout-out to the Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers literally around the world, six continents, anybody in Antarctica, anybody. All of you who are with me here listening to this show, show your love for life on this planet by being the kick-ass defenders of truth and supporters of this planet and of nuclear awareness. Thanks for gathering at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook. If you haven't been there already, be sure to stop by, click like, post, and share. If you know of a radio station in your area that would be interested in joining the growing list of broadcast affiliates carrying Nuclear Hot Seat, contact us with their info or have them contact us by sending an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, delivered with as much humor and context as possible, take a moment to send a donation to nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the Art of Communicating, reminding you that, as Nobel laureate and Hiroshima atom bomb survivor Sesko Thurlow said as she accepted the Nobel Peace Prize, nuclear weapons are not a necessary evil. They are an ultimate evil. There, did it again. You just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.